0: Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Hey, Chris. How you doing, John?
1: I'm doing well. How are you feeling?
0: Uh, I've had better weeks. Uh, Unfortunately, travel is one of those times when there's a good chance that you're going to get sick. I don't have children, so I don't uh, have uh, them as a disease vector, but... Travel is always one of those times when there's a high chance of you getting sick uh, either on a plane or in an airport or at a conference. And I managed to pick up a nasty cold right as I was leaving from uh, Santa Fe. So that, was, uh, that wasn't that was good, but I'm uh, mostly recovered now and feeling a lot better.
1: Yeah, planes are the worst for that.
0: Yeah, and it's been a while since we last talked. It's been, uh, the listeners will have heard our, uh, our previous episode two weeks ago. But uh, for you and I, it's been almost six weeks since the last time we recorded.
1: Mm-hmm. You've been racking up the miles.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's been a bit, of a, a bit of a month of travel. We'll chat a little bit about some of the things that I got up to and what's coming up next. But I've been uh, spending a lot of time on airplanes and, and in uh, airports.
1: So you're back at the British Horological Institute again for another course. So what'd you get up to at Upton Hall?
0: Yeah, I decided to take a course on servicing day-date mechanisms as well as automatics. And so I flew over to the UK at the end of April. Uh, I have to thank Seth Kennedy for picking me up from Heathrow. He was uh, generous enough to uh, to drive out and pick me up and Spent the afternoon with him and his family. We, uh, we were chatting, of course, a lot about watchmaking, and uh, he was showing off his uh, Rose engine that he is uh, currently using to uh, to learn engine turning. Uh, so it was very generous of Seth to come and pick me up and, and uh, host me for the afternoon. And then after a few days spent in London doing some sightseeing, I headed to Upton Hall and uh, did this, uh, this next course with, uh, John Murphy. And, uh, we had a great time, uh, great week of, of working on watches. I'm always, always happy to be around other people who are doing this kind of work and being able to learn, uh, learn a little bit more about what I don't know, which in the watch world is a lot.
1: So this was your second time back at the BHI for their course. Did you find you were feeling more prepared for it going in this time?
0: Absolutely. I was definitely feeling more confident about what I was doing, and uh, that helped a lot. Now, one of the challenges that I did have was that I forgot to bring a bunch of my own tools with me this time, and I was struggling with the tweezers that uh, I had available to me. They had been chewed up by somebody in a previous course. So uh, I ended up ordering some tweezers um, and doing an emergency tool order while I was there. And that helped out significantly. I was chasing far fewer parts around the workshop after I did that.
1: You're lucky to have a horological supply house as big as Cousins close at hand there.
0: Oh, yeah. And Cousins was great. I ordered a set of tweezers or a bunch of tweezers and some other tools at two o'clock, I think, on Monday afternoon. And I had them in my hands before lunch the next day. It was uh, it was wonderful certainly Canada Post would never be able to deliver a package that quickly but uh they were able to get it shipped out and the Royal Mail was uh, able to get it to me uh, at Upton Hall very quickly so I'm very thankful for that it made a huge difference when it came to working on um on various things
1: being a crown corporation you think Canada Post would be able to keep up with the Royal Post but...
0: <laughs> no no not at all it's uh their the mail delivery system in in the UK is Unbelievably efficient. So, if you're in the UK and you're looking or you're visiting the UK and you need something, don't hesitate to use the post. It's uh, it is quite remarkable, and I do recommend if you are going to go over for a course, even if it's your first one, uh, bringing over a set of uh, some basic tools with you is certainly worthwhile. So, uh, I had my my loops with me; uh, those had managed to get into the bag, uh, but I do recommend bring. Uh, bring the tweezers that you like to work with, and also bring in a set of screwdrivers with you if you can. Uh, that'll um, certainly something that you're you're comfortable with working uh, working with and something that you like working with. So I now have a, a travel kit for uh, the next time I go over, which will be soon, and uh, that way I can bring all that stuff with me and I don't have to rely on what's being provided.
1: Yeah, I would echo that for just about any type of horological training including brand specific training
0: yeah yeah unfortunately it's a little more challenging with uh with traveling by plane and obviously i i would bring a much larger toolkit with me if i could but it's uh it's a little more challenging when you're flying
1: yeah particularly if you don't want to check any luggage
0: yes not checking luggage is uh it makes it a little bit more challenging and this time i was able to get away with not checking luggage on the way there and that was uh that was nice. It, it sped things up significantly and made it a lot easier to uh, to travel through the airports.
1: So, what did day one of the course hold in store for you?
0: So this time around, we were moving at a much faster pace than we did the last course. So the the first course is a reminder for people. It was the basic watch, basic mechanical watch course, and we worked on an ETA six four nine seven, and it took us four days, four and a half days to tear down, clean, lubricate, reassemble uh, that 6497. In this one, we were working on uh, an ETA 2836 to begin with, and we had it torn down and uh, you know we were starting to clean it by the end of day one. So we were moving at a much faster pace than we were in the first course. Uh, there was a little bit more work involved with with this one. Obviously, it's a, a more complex movement, and when it came to reassembling it, we wanted to spend a little bit more time doing adjustments and and whatnot than we did with the uh, in the first course. So, yeah, the 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 pace of this course was significantly faster than the the first one, and I would recommend. Uh, now, you do have to do the first course before you can take this. So you, if you don't have your basic mechanical, then you won't be able to take the automatic course. And even if you have taken the basic mechanical, I do recommend that you are practiced and working with movements on a regular basis. Don't take one course, you know, ignore it for six months, and then assume that you can get through the next course uh, easily. You really do need to practice on a regular basis and if you're not in the industry and you're not working on watches regularly, you need to force yourself to work on these movements and uh, and at least practice because that'll give you the hand skill that you need to be able to control these small parts and, and be able to work quickly.
1: I presume this is going to be one of the more modern variants of the at a 2836. So did you get an introduction to the Eticron system or a walkthrough of how that works and how to adjust it?
0: We did a little bit of work adjusting the hairspring and timing it better. Uh, so we went into more detail and timing uh, than we did in the first course. And uh, in fact we spent an afternoon basically doing that. So it was nice to be able to get a get a better understanding of what's going on with the uh, with the timing of these watches and how to adjust them properly.
1: And did they supply you with the Eticron specific Tools, or is that yeah. something you needed to bring?
0: Okay. No, no. We they had the eticron specific tools there for us. Uh, obviously, if you've got your own, then you know you may as well bring them along. But what they had, they had all the tools there that we needed for the uh, for the hairspring adjustment.
1: And how did you find that?
0: Uh, incredibly frustrating. As uh, you know, for my first time, really doing a lot of uh, a lot of adjustment to a hairspring, it was frustrating to do. I, I'm curious at some point to go off and and make one of these movements, whether this one or, or one of the other ones that I've got into a free sprung movement, because I'm curious to see the differences and the different challenges between, you know, the the different types of regulation for these and sort of get a, be able to do a comparison of the two. Uh, obviously this is designed as an adjustable system that, you know, any watchmaker can go in and, and um, quote unquote, easily adjust. Uh, but I'd be curious to see how uh, how that that differs from making it free-sprung. And um, I, I know I certainly had some frustrations with getting the timing right and, and uh, keeping it, you know, making one adjustment and not completely screwing up other adjustments. So uh, it was an interesting challenge, and uh, I'm curious to sort of dive into it a little bit more because I, I'm certainly not super comfortable with it yet. Obviously, you know, only having done it uh, a couple of times now. I'm not super comfortable with it yet, but it'll be uh, something that I want to dive into some more.
1: Yeah, while theoretically quite trivial to switch a movement over to being free-sprung, uh, it actually is uh, far more nuances to it than just simply removing the pin regulator. Sure. Um, so with a, a twenty-eight thirty-six or or say a twenty-eight twenty-four, very closely related, uh, I would almost... Rather than expend the effort of developing your own system, just go with the the newer movements from ETA that are essentially the same movement and already free sprung. Right. Unless you're building your own caliber from the ground up or heavily modifying the caliber. Um, the performance for effort ratio isn't very good there. But it's, it's certainly, I would say, uh, an admirable and worthwhile effort to make any movement free sprung because the benefits for timekeeping performance are certainly there compared to a pin regulated balance in terms of your, your long-term performance.
0: Well, and that's just it. The long-term performance is what's really key. You know, if this was a movement that I was just getting and doing a quick maintenance on and sending back out the door again, and I was never going to see it again, then it really doesn't matter to me very much how it's been regulated as long as it's timed properly. But if this is something that either it's my own watch or it's one of my watches that I'm planning on selling and I expect at some point I'm going to get back as, um, as something to uh, to do a service on, then at that point it may be worthwhile spending the initial effort to to do that. So it's something that I'm going to experiment with. I, at the very least, I want to try it out just to be able to say, that I know how to do it and that I know the pros and cons of it, rather than just sort of knowing it theoretically. Um, Hmm. Again, whether I do it on one of these 2836s or not, it's that's unlikely. I've got one that I'm using for practice, but I'll probably experiment with uh, converting one of my Eterna movements to be free sprung and uh, see how it operates compared to uh, one of the stock ones and sort of get a sense of, of, How much time and effort it would take me to do it, and whether it'd be worth it for the long-term sort of reliability of the uh, the movements that I'm planning on using.
1: Fair warning, dear listener, this next bit may get into the technical deep end. So if that's not your cup of tea, Chris will interject a little chapter here that you can skip right over in your podcast player of choice. For anyone who might be curious. Uh, the Eticron system is it has patented system for uh, a pin regulator. And a, a pin regulator in a mechanical watch is what's used to adjust the timekeeping to speed it up or to slow it down. And the way that it achieves this is by shortening or lengthening the active length of the hairspring. So if you have a a shorter active length, the bounce wheel is going to spin faster. And if you have a longer hairspring, then it's going to beat slower. So the system allows you to take these two pins that run just alongside the hairspring, coming up quite close to it. And when the hairspring is in motion, it will collide with one pin or the other. And that then is the effective length of the hairspring where it happens to collide. The interesting insight or or breakthrough or selling feature of the Etikron system is that it makes it quite trivial to alter the distance between these two pins because you don't want... There to be too much distance, and you don't want there to be so little that it's actually hugging the hairspring from either side. So, Eta also has special tools for working with this Edachron system, and uh, there's one of these tools. Uh, it's almost like having a
0: yeah. It's almost like a little socket wrench to adjust this uh, this pin
1: precisely. And so, with this tool, you can make very minor tweaks to the, the distance uh, of these pins, as well as the the way that they're positioned. Uh, one way you can go off the rails and, and position it incorrectly is to actually uh, flip the the impact that the, the pins are having. Because when the spring is compressing in on itself, where it hits the regulating pin, it's going to hit the inner pin, and that is going to actually shorten the effective length of the spring slightly compared to when the spring is expanding and it comes and hits the outside pin and pulls away from the stud and actually lengthens slightly more. So you want to have these pins angled in such a way that that is compensated for. So that whether it's hitting the outside regulating pin or the inside regulating pin, the active length of the spring remains the same. So if you were to position the regulating pin on the outside so that it was further towards the stud than the inner one, you're actually going to exacerbate the difference between the two. So you angle it just so and make all those fine adjustments and just dial your time keeping him as tight as possible. And you referred to making some adjustments to the hairspring there, Chris. I presume this is to try and get it as centered as possible between these regulating pins while also keeping it as concentric as possible around the balance staff.
0: Yeah. So there was a few different things that we had to deal with. One was making sure that it was concentric so that it was balanced sort of around that balance staff so that you were – you had an equal amount of, um, of spring on one side, sort of the coiled spring on one side versus the other, and so that was one of the things that we we were sort of adjusting, and then of course also adjusting the length of the spring so that it was uh, it was timing properly. Now you did mention one way that you can sort of mess this up with with adjusting the pins so that they're not quite so that the the dynamic length of that spring isn't correct. Uh, the thing you also didn't mention was that if you go too far with these pins, then you can also put a permanent kink in your hairspring.
1: Yes, yes, that's very possible as well.
0: And and that's something that uh, we may have had to have adjusted uh, a little bit of a kink out of a few of those hairsprings that week. Um, people were occasionally a little too uh, ambitious with how much they were turning the uh, the pins. It certainly allows for very easy adjustments, but if you don't know what you're doing, it's very easy to get yourself into trouble with it as well.
1: Don't run with scissors.
0: <laughs> and don't don't over-adjust your, uh, your Eticron pins.
1: Going off on a tangent a little bit here, should you pursue this route with the Eternas that you're working with, will you create your own balance cock, or are you planning to redo all the bridges, or what's your game plan there with the Aeternus? Uh
0: With the Eternas, I probably wouldn't redo all of the bridges. I, I don't... I think if I'm going to spend that much time and effort with it, I would probably do that for my own movements versus re, you know, completely rebuilding uh, one of their movements. So I could see redoing the balance cock and balance but I don't think I would redo all of the bridges. That's fair. I, you know, at that point, it's it then becomes questionable how much time and effort am I putting into somebody else's movement. Uh, it may be worth it. We'll have to see. It's, But I, I'd be surprised if it is. I, I think I'd rather put that effort into an in-house movement that I'm designing from the ground up and building as opposed to uh, taking theirs and uh, putting all that effort into it.
1: So what are your general thoughts on the? 2836, now you're more familiar with it.
0: I've taken apart and and serviced a 2824 before, uh, and this is not significantly different than the 2824. It's, it's an okay movement. I, I don't really have a lot of movements to compare it to. Most of what I've worked on over the years have been pocket watch movements, so obviously this is significantly smaller than dealing with a pocket watch movement. Uh, but it's Uh, It was reasonable to work with. I will say that uh, a lot of these modern watch movements, they're designed to be assembled by machines. And the screws, uh, the slots and the screws are profiled differently than older watch screws are. Uh, They've got a thicker slot that goes down the center of them. I hate those. Even having reprofiled a screwdriver to be able to handle them I'm not really a big fan of the, the really thick uh, slots on these screws. If I were going to be using these and selling them, I would probably go off and replace a lot of these screws because I hate these machine screws or the ones that are designed for being operated by machines. Um, but overall, it was a great movement. I, I didn't have any complaints about it. It was uh, it was nice to work with.
1: Now would you go full Romain Gautier on your <laughs> screws? <laughs>
0: Well, I don't know. I'd have to practice a little bit and see how quickly I could, uh, I could make those, but I, I suspect not.
1: I applaud the decision not to. Those, <laughs> those screws are truly a, a cruel twist.
0: <laughs> yeah. For, for those who don't realize the the Romain Gauthier ones have, uh, an S curve for the, uh, the slots, which would be, uh, interesting to try and machine and to, uh, to then work with because, of course, you'd need a specialty screwdriver for them.
1: Did you pick up any little tips or tricks or insights along the way that you found handy?
0: Uh, one other thing that we did do in this course that we didn't do on the first one is that this was a fully cased watch, uh, so it didn't just include the movement, which the the first one with the 6497, we just worked on the movement. We didn't have a... um. We had a pocket watch case that was in, but it wasn't particularly interesting. Uh, this one was a modern wristwatch case. We also did water pressure testing on these cases and uh, checked to, to check and confirm that the seals were good. Uh, so that was interesting. It was nice to sort of play around with some different parts of, of working on a watch that are not necessarily specific to the movement itself, but are just as important when it comes to servicing a watch. Uh, obviously, there's more than just a movement in there you have to deal with the case and the sort of the environs of the watch itself. So that was uh that was nice to play around with and to uh and to do some work on.
1: So what sort of equipment did you get to go hands on with for the the waterproof testing?
0: They had two water testers. Uh one was a dry tester, one was a wet tester. I can't remember the name brands of them, but they the water tester was a classic, you know, hand crank um so hand pump based one where you're you're pumping it up to um, to put pressure into it. Uh, the uh, dry one was a modern one that does automatic testing and sort of spits out a, a set of results that you could print out. Um, so it was it was a reasonably modern thing to to work with, and that was nice. And it was again, it was certainly certainly different than what I'm used to, and I, I had never done any any pressure testing on any case before. So it was it was a nice uh, chance to sort of see what's involved with that and see what's expected of it as well, um, because that's, that's obviously something that's important. Now, we weren't building dive watches or anything like that, so it's not as if we were expecting, you know, 1,000-meter ratings on these watches, but it was kind of nice to see some of them that failed, why some of them failed, uh, things like that.
1: And for the dry testers, more than likely a WeChi, which is the company that also makes timing machines that are the most widely used in the industry. And then for the the wet test, from what you described, it's probably a, a Bergeon water tester, uh, or some variant thereof, because the patents on that particular one have long since lapsed, so you can pick them up for less than $100 from uh, a Chinese maker. So a commonality between these two movements that you worked on, the, the ETA and the Seiko, was the date system. Or rather, that they both had a date system. Uh, not that they were the same, uh, so what did you learn or or discover in the process of working with a, a typical date system?
0: The date system was definitely interesting to work with, although it it's most of them are relatively straightforward in terms of setup and configuring. There really isn't a lot to adjust as long as you assemble the watch together properly um it was It was reasonably simple. It obviously adds some more complexity to the movement, but I was pleasantly surprised at how easy it was to to work with. After we finished the ETA 2836, we started working on a Seiko watch. Now, these were older Seiko 5s, and they had a 7S26A movement in them, uh, which is a relatively common movement that that Seiko's made for years and years and years in various variants. And the one thing I will say, working on the Seiko versus the at those little date discs that they've got are paper paper thin, and it is so easy to damage those things. Uh, so if you're working on uh, some of these watches, just be careful about working on the the discs. Uh, they're visible, of course, to the um, to anybody who's using it. Um, both the disc for the um, for the dial as well as the disc for the uh, day date. And it is very, very easy to damage those things. So be be very careful. The Eta ones, obviously you can still scratch the disc movement quite easily if you're not careful. Uh, but they're far more robust to work with than the uh, Seiko ones
1: are. This is something I've reflected on from time to time. And uh, I think this is an area where there is room for improvement within the industry. Um, I don't know whether that might come in the form of a a memory metal, uh, because truthfully, it's not all that often that a a date wheel does get bent, although it is certainly possible to do that. Uh, But an area I have thought could be interesting here would be to create a, a disc entirely out of plastic or a somewhat pliable ceramic. Now, I've experimented with making them out of plastic, but I've not yet found a plastic suitable enough for the task uh, because a plastic is plastic and somewhat more resilient to bending. But on top of that, if you were to manufacture it in a a particular manner, you could actually, say, have an extrusion of, of plastic where the numerals actually traverse all the way through the the plastic material. And that way you wouldn't have to worry about scratches. You've got the nice pliability. But in any experiments I've run so far, getting one thin enough, you generally end up with fractured teeth and whatnot. So uh, if you are a material scientist and uh, happen to know plenty about plastics, I'd, I'd love to hear if uh, you have any thoughts or or candidates for a suitable plastic for date disks now i should say the swatch group does have some plastic date wheels in their swatch watches but those are very thick uh, so not suitable to a number of other calibers say for instance the at a 2092 which is very common but would require a much thinner date disc than what you have in, say, those Swatch Watches.
0: Yeah, the I think the biggest challenge that I've seen with the date discs, the day-date discs um, that I've come across, the metal ones at least, is the printing on them tends to be quite uh, quite thick. And I suspect that if you did... Bend those date discs at all, you'd probably damage the printing as well. Uh, so I think you're right. If you were going to try doing it out of a plastic, it would have to be something that was sort of printed all the way through, so that if something were to happen to it, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't sort of crack the finish, if you will, or crack the printing on it and uh, and damage that. Uh, but fortunately, we none of us had too many problems with those uh, those date discs. We were we were pretty careful with them. And there really isn't a lot that you're doing with them other than removing them and getting them back on. Uh, of course, there, there are some tricks in terms of when you get them on and off. Um, having that little spacer that's, uh, that's around the movement so that there's enough distance between the date disc and the, the back of the dial. Uh, that was something I managed to screw up and uh, forgot to put that little, uh, that little spacer ring in when I reassembled the watch the first time. Uh, so that was, uh, that was a challenge.
1: Did the date disc escape unharmed?
0: Uh, the date disc did escape unharmed, although I'm not sure that you would know, be able to notice uh, these especially these Seiko's, uh, they're they've seen better days. They've been around for a while. And um unfortunately, you know, the these movements get a lot of work on them in the uh at the BHI. In fact, I think those six four nine sevens that they use uh, may be the cleanest watches on the planet. They they get serviced completely like once a month, or if not more often, it's uh, it's a little bit silly how uh, how often they get uh, taken apart and cleaned by uh, students, but that's what they're there for. If you're in the industry and you're ever looking to uh, sort of promote watchmaking and and help education of of new watchmakers, uh, if you're in a position to be able to donate movements to uh, to somewhere like the BHI, then I definitely recommend that. Uh, these these do get a lot of use, and of course. Hearts go missing um, you know ham-fisted Canadians are uh, launching um, capsules around the room and then being unable to find them so uh, if you're if you're ever in a position to uh, to donate a little bit of uh, money or, or goods to somewhere like the BHI or another school then uh, making movements available to them is uh, certainly a great way to help because these things do get uh, get used quite a bit and they're not cheap It's, uh, if you're buying a half a dozen movements and, uh, you know, that, that adds up pretty quickly.
1: Mm -hmm. So the date systems on these two movements are different being made quite literally on opposite sides of the planet. Now the automatic sections and the approach that the Japanese have taken versus the Swiss are also dramatically different. Mind you, Tag Hoyer has, has gone off and you know co-opted the Japanese strategy here. But how would you describe the differences between these two means of automatically winding a watch while it's being worn?
0: Both of them are interesting, and and they're quite clever. The Swiss one is using a pair of gears. When the rotor turns in a different direction... Each of the gears is either slack or engaged. And as the rotor reverses, there's a change in that, uh, in which one is slack versus engaged. So it's an interesting system that allows it to wind regardless of which direction the rotor is moving. Although one of the disadvantages of it is because there is some sort of backlash as it transfers from one gear to the other, uh, you can end up in a situation where you're not actually winding the watch very much because it's not the rotor isn't moving enough to be able to sort of engage and be able to uh to sort of meaningfully power power the uh the spring so it's it's an interesting system and it it works obviously works well um these these watches have enough of um enough spring capacity that Most people will be able to continue winding them. The Japanese one is, uh, is really interesting though. It uses a pair of poles to wind the spring and they're all, it's always moving in the same direction. And there is a cam, a heart shaped cam that's attached to the rotor. And as it rotates, it engages or disengages the two poles uh consecutively. We'll see if we can maybe find a video of it to uh to show people what it looks like. Yeah, it's a clever little system. I love the look of it and uh it's such an elegant solution to this problem because it's getting a system where you will get winding in both directions of the rotor can be a challenge and you end up with situations like the one with the that the Swiss are using where Th- where there is some backlash there, and so you're maybe not getting as efficient winding as you as you might like uh this Japanese system is great and it actually uh works very very well and uh based on what I've seen there there is a very very minimal backlash there, so even with very minor movement of that rotor, you're still getting winding and uh it's a great little great little design they've got
1: as a testament to the efficiency of Seiko's system. There was a, a patent registered several years ago by an American watchmaker named Stephen Phillips, and uh, this was effectively uh, an Atmos for the wrist. So an Atmos clock, for anyone who might not be familiar, is a clock made by Georges lecoultre that winds itself based on changes in temperature. So Phillips created a similar system for a wristwatch. So theoretically, you would never need to wind it. And even if you're not wearing it, it's going to keep itself wound just by very subtle fluctuations in temperature. And the style of winding mechanism or automatic winding mechanism that he used is this same magic lever system that was developed by Seiko.
0: I can understand why he would use that. It's um, it's a great little design and it's extremely efficient. Uh, I'm I'm a, I guess the the fact that I've never seen a wristwatch with one of these um, sort of Atmos systems uh, isn't surprising. I, I'm, I imagine it would be challenging with the temperature changes that you're going to see between wearing it and not wearing it to to get that system to work well. Um, I, I did anybody actually use this in a watch? Because it it seems to me like it would have tremendous engineering problems
1: not in mass production and i've not ever handled one mm. myself i've certainly been curious to try and replicate it uh, at some point and actually the particular movement that he used can be had for very little money i'm talking less than 50 dollars uh, to try and replicate the same thing that, that he created and if you were to take phillips at his word apparently it works. So I would love to see this in production someday because it's a very, very interesting concept. And I'm sure there are some technical hurdles to be overcome, uh, but I would say not impossible. And uh, he's proven, at least in in writing and in pictures, that it can be done. Uh, But perhaps someone who's actually handled the watch uh, would be better versed in in being able to uh, attest to just how effective it is. Now, the patent has lapsed. So anyone who is interested in trying to replicate Philip's work uh, will post a link to the patent in the show notes. And I'll try and dig up an old article if I can as well, uh, so you can get an idea of exactly how this winding system works.
0: Yeah, maybe if it's uh, if it's not impossible to build or or engineer, maybe that's a, a future future manning um, watch movement.
1: There you have it. <laughs> so, do you have any plans to return to Upton Hall for their seventy-seven fifty course?
0: Yeah the the next course that I am going to do is on servicing chronographs, and that is going to use uh, Valjoux seventy-seven fifty one for that course and has a whole slew of different features on it in fact i think it has just about everything except for the ability to make your tea in the morning uh it has your day date month chronograph moon phase automatic it's uh it's got the whole the whole uh, gamut of different uh complications that people like to see in their watches this next course is conveniently timed to be the week following the Goldsmiths Congress in London uh, that I'll be speaking at in July. So I'll be flying over for the, the Congress and, and giving my talk on yellow and then sticking around for uh, the chronograph course the following week and doing that. Uh, so I, that one's going to be interesting because we do go into we go into adjusting the chronographs as well and uh and playing around with that so that i'm really curious about i I don't know that i plan on doing a lot of chronographs in my future Uh, i do find the dials a little bit busy for my liking so i don't know for my own watches whether i'm ever going to do a chronograph but i'm really curious to see how they work and um and sort of dig into them and and see what's involved in them
1: that sounds like perfect timing
0: yeah it absolutely is
1: you've also just come Hot off the heels of a, another conference, uh, but I think we'll we'll save that for another episode.
0: Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of uh, a lot of travel uh, this uh, this month, and uh, we've glossed over a whole pile of things that happened that month, um, including uh, Maker Central and the Santa Fe Symposium. But maybe uh, next episode we'll dig into those a little bit and talk about what uh, what I got up to for the rest of that trip.
1: Yeah, you clocked just under. Twenty thousand kilometers in this past few weeks and uh (laughs) courtesy of seth kennedy uh, i hear your average speed of travel was about 27 kilometers an hour yeah
0: that's pretty good considering i i spent significant parts of that month sitting on my ass in front of a, a watchmaker's bench and and not moving at all and uh but yeah i managed to uh to average about 27 kilometers the the uh those 30 days that i was traveling so that's uh it's pretty pretty respectable.
1: Well, I look forward to hearing more about your travels next episode.
0: Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at undertheloop. And Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand. And then uh, I did just back the uh, the latest uh, Sisyphus project on Kickstarter. I don't know if you've uh, you've followed any of that.
1: I, don't, I have no idea.
0: Oh, all right. Well, let me uh, let me introduce you to the wild and wacky world of Sisyphus. Bruce Shapiro, who did these, uh, he started making these years ago for museums, and he was making these things at like 20, 30-foot diameters. And it's basically a big CNC machine that uses a magnet to drag uh, a ball around, a steel ball around, in a sand pit.
1: It's almost like a, a zen garden.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like a, it's a modern Zen garden on steroids and uh, they're really, really cool to watch.
1: This would be freaking cool to bury outside and actually have his little Zen garden that designs itself.
0: <laughs> yeah. They, you'd have to be, you'd have to figure something out to keep it out of the, the uh, elements. Cause it would be, uh, it would get destroyed pretty quickly. I think in the, well, uh, I
1: presume it's all magnets just shrouded in plastic.
0: Uh. Yeah, you'd have to make sure that the that the the mechanism underneath was uh, was well protected, but um, they've been doing so. They did a, a Kickstarter a few years ago to do um larger tables like ones that were sort of three four feet in diameter, and I was originally going to buy one, and I I didn't get in on the Kickstarter. He's just put out this one with uh, smaller ones, and more importantly, he's done ones that have are very very. They're really scaled down. Like they have basically got—it's just an exoskeleton, no table around it at all. Um, so I'm picking up one of those so that I can hack at it and uh, and see if I can modify it and turn it into something uh, a little bit more interesting than what he's done.
1: This is very cool.
0: Yeah, at the very least if it's if I if I can't hack it into what I'm uh, what I'm have in mind, then I'm just going to build my own table around it and uh, do my own cool little coffee table for the the living room out of it.
1: Very neat. Thank you for this.